Wellness Force Radio, episode 41. A shift happens. If you aren't happy with your stress level, your emotional satisfaction or enjoyment with life, your anxiety, your sleep, your cognitive resources, these things change and can be developed. You should not be satisfied. Do not settle for a brain that doesn't do what you want. Hello, wellness. Welcome back to another episode. I am your host, Josh Trent. I'm also your digital health coach and trusted friend on your wellness journey. Thanks so much for spending this little slice of your day with me here on the podcast. If you're new to Wellness Force, this show is where I bring you the most inspiring and passionate experts in behavior change and wellness technology. These are thought leaders. They dedicate their lives to empowering us with the knowledge and tools that drive real transformation in our physical and emotional wellness. I am so pumped you're here. But before bringing bring on our guests, I want to let you in on something really exciting that is coming in just two weeks for Wellness Force. One of the things today we're going to talk about on the show is brain health, making the right decisions that yield the best results for our wellness. Well, the program I've created over at wellnessforce.com slash 120 leverages some of the exact behavior change concepts we'll talk about on the show today. I built this program after realizing the problem with being healthy and losing weight in this modern world is that we live in this age of over-information and not enough accountability. I mean, really, all the information we need is on Google. So then why are so many people still overweight? It's because people are overwhelmed, specifically moms. Moms have the power to inspire their family because if moms are a healthy example, that's what kids learn. And that's what I wish I could have learned as an overweight child. So to rise above the noise, I have created a 18-month research and development proven strategy in wellness technology from over 10,000 hours, coaching clients one-on-one to create, finally, this trusted bridge between knowing and doing for what I believe will give busy moms the clarity and inspiration to cut through all that confusion and noise and take some step-by-step action to let go of old weight and have more energy. Learn more about this powerful accountability group at wellnessforce.com slash 120 and check out the program launching on February 15th. That's wellnessforce.com slash 120. Now let's jump into this powerful episode with Dr. Andrew Hill. Dr. Hill is the lead neuroscientist at True Brain, an LA-based mental performance company. You guys are absolutely going to love Dr. Hill's methodology, his unique story. This guy has a cool past. If learning about and using the positive neural pathways in your brain to create long-term sustainable behavior change sparks an interest or pegs curiosity, today's show is absolutely for you. We've had Jesse Lawler on the show from Smart Drug Smarts, but today we're getting a scientific approach from someone who has spent the majority of his life researching behavior change and brain health. So without any further waiting, let's jump into the amazing conversation with Dr. Andrew Hill. Dr. Hill holds a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA's Department of Psychology and continues to do research on attention and cognitive performance. He is the lead neuroscientist for TrueBrain, an LA-based mental performance company, as well as the co-founder of Alternatives Addiction Treatment. Dr. Hill lectures at UCLA, teaches courses in psychology, neuroscience, and gerontology, and has recently opened a peak brain performance center, as we mentioned, right in the heart of the valley there. Dr. Hill's road to being a neuroscientist has been the ultimate hero's journey. In the past, he's worked on a farm, in the technology sector, in mental health facilities, and many different previous careers that give him this unique understanding of how humans behave, what holds them back, and the science of how brain health can literally change lives. He is focused on the tools and technologies that help everyday citizens enhance their cognitive performance outside of the lab. Dr. Hill, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Josh. Uh, Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. This is going to be a phenomenal topic because brain health directly relates to behavior change. And I feel like nootropics is something that's very hot, I guess you could say, in the wellness industry. However, we're going to plug in today how this really relates to busy working professionals, moms and dads. Dr. Hill, I know you've been all over the media this year, but I'm curious, what is something fun or unique that most people might not know about you? Uh, um, well, uh, when I moved out to Los Angeles about a decade ago to start a PhD, um, I did it, uh, I moved from Boston to LA on the back of a motorcycle. So I, uh, spent about a week or two traveling, uh, up and down mountains and through little tiny side roads to get, uh, all the way across the country. 
and you have a really eclectic background. I was listening to a few of your episodes throughout my week, and you actually worked on a farm at one point, right? Can you tell us about that? Sure. I, I grew up in a town called Westport, Massachusetts, which is in a little area called Buzzards Bay, sort of uh, sheltered from a lot of the um, uh, weather that Massachusetts has. And there's a lot of farming in Westport. And um, as when I was a teenager, I spent uh, a few years working on a, a berry farm. Uh, picking blueberries and strawberries and raspberries. How was that experience? I mean, was it just a bunch of smelly hippies or were there some intelligent people you learned from? It was just, you know, it's, it's generations of farmers at that point. So it, the people I was working with were, um, you know, 10, 12, 14 year old grandchildren of the, of the farmers who own the farm. Well, you are a cognitive neuroscientist. What is, for people that might not know, uh, I don't know how many people know exactly what cognitive neuroscience is. Can you paint a, a quick picture of what that branch of science actually does? Sure. I mean, even, even two cognitive neuroscientists side by side will do you know, different things. Um, the joke you know, about getting a PhD is uh, you learn more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing. Hmm. Um, and, and what I ended up sort of zeroing in on was um, how the brain produces the experience of attention. In general, cognitive neuroscience works at the intersection of mind and brain or how the brain produces the mind. Um, usually it's involved with something about human experience. Uh, and for me, that was looking at how um, attention operates in each hemisphere of the brain separately, and then how the brain sort of stitches those uh, different systems together to produce a unified experience of attention that feels like it's one sort of attention system. But we actually have at least two or three different attention systems that sort of moment to moment have to be integrated to produce a uh, sort of smooth experience of attending. And so for me, it was all about looking at that experience, how the brain does that, and my uh, tools and technologies, my, my methodology for research, as well as for clinical work, is in uh, EEG or, or brain waves. And so I, uh, as an assessment tool, use something called QEEG or quantitative EEG, where we take um, brain maps, essentially, arresting baseline activity uh, assessments of one brain, and then we compare that to databases that have thousands and thousands of brains in it. And out of that, we get maps that tell me how unusual somebody is uh, in you know, thousands of different parameters. And sometimes we can figure out uh, what unusual patterns um, might mean. For instance, if you're somebody who um, produces a lot of very slow brain waves in your frontal lobe, then I would probably say, oh, this, this pattern can often be ADHD. Do you have an, a history of being impulsive? Oh, you do. Mm. Okay, great. Let's believe that. And so we start off with looking at essentially baseline or resting activity, uh, EEG um, waves or patterns. And from that, it informs not only a, a clinical approach where we manipulate the EEG to, to change your experience, but I ended up using that technology in research as well. And we do um, sort of attention assessments. Um, you know, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm involved with nootropics and, uh, and TrueBrain. And so on the research side, um, we are starting uh, a bunch of studies looking at the effects of true brain on the brain, specifically contrasting or comparing the effects of true brain with all of the old classic studies about how caffeine affects the brain. Um, you know, there's, there's a pretty big reliance, if you will, these days on caffeine for, for energy, for productivity. Americans drink 2.5 cups of coffee a day. I had no idea it was that much. Yeah, and I mean, uh, there's some Americans who, who, like, like me who, who drink way more than that. Uh, <laughs> how many cups a day do you oh, drink? Oh, it's, it's, it gets a little bit extreme. Um, I have to sort of keep an eye on how much caffeine I have, and I tend to cut myself off as I approach a gram of caffeine a day. Have you done the 23andMe uh, testing? I actually yeah. have the different markers for sensitivity to caffeine because yep. I'm a European-Italian. Yep. How about yourself? Um, I was a moderate, I think, uh, responder or, or metabolizer. I forget what. And then all, all that really determines or all that really affects is um, what the elimination half-life is. If you're, if sure. you're a fast metabolizer, then caffeine, uh, one half-life, about three hours. And if you're a slow ha metabolizer, one half-life is about six hours. Now, a half-life is a little misleading doesn't mean that caffeine's out of your system in three hours. Uh, things that affect uh, the, the mind, the brain, typically have an effect on the EEG. You, know, you, can, you can see the effects in the brain waves for five half-lives. 
And that means a slow metabolizer has an effect, significant effect on their brain waves for 30 hours, which means you're wow. never getting it out of your system. You're never actually going back to base. Which could definitely affect sleep and everything oh, else. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm not here to vilify caffeine. I think caffeine is a pretty amazing substance. Uh, but I enjoy it's it, yeah. Not, it's not the only strategy, and it's not what I would call a nootropic Okay. Well, you're so passionate, Dr. Hill, about biofeedback and EEG. And by the way, those two phrases, EEG, biofeedback, are those are those analogous to meaning just essentially tracking abnormalities in the brain? I mean, do those cross-relate? Um, well, EEG is just, you know, brain waves. And there's two kinds of biofeedback or two categories broadly. And one is uh, peripheral biofeedback or training sort of the peripheral nervous system. And that would include things like HRV training, which is amazing for giving you sort of skills and controlling your stress response. Um, you know, really amazing. But, but it's a voluntary process, um, peripheral biofeedback is, where you have to learn to feel the experience and learn to practice. And doing HRV or some other form of peripheral biofeedback, it's a lot closer to meditation where you're skill building, developing a sort of a way of, of, of being. Um, the other form of biofeedback I would categorize is central biofeedback. And this is biofeedback on the central nervous system, otherwise known as neurofeedback. And so all forms of neurofeedback are biofeedback, but not all forms of biofeedback are neurofeedback. You, know, you can do peripheral. Um, the difference is in neurofeedback, it's largely an involuntary process. You measure activity in the brain, and then when it happens to trend in the right direction, quote-unquote, you make something happen in the environment, like a spaceship flies faster or a movie screen gets brighter. Um, but then moment to moment, the brain is fluctuating in and out of desired directions, and so the experience of doing neurofeedback is simply having stimuli stop and start hundreds of times in half an hour, and your brain starts to tune itself to try to produce more stimuli, but it's not a voluntary process. The, mm. the, the technology, if you will, of neurofeedback was discovered on cats um, who aren't very good at following instructions. And, and it, <laughs> it, it works really well on people who are nonverbal, people in coma. So it's really this low-level sort of shaping of the brain that we don't have to sit down and talk about your mother or anything else. Um, uh, you know, your, your brain can be changed. An analogous way to going to the gym for your body, this is going to the gym for your brain. Um, and you can make some pretty dramatic changes with, with neurofeedback. Um, but it's you know a fairly te technologically intense and a fairly involved process. It does take you – know, it's training, not a spot intervention. So you – typically need to do a lot of training and to get, you know, make big changes in your brain. But nootropics are more of a spot intervention and more of a, you know, day-to-day. -day. And nootropics is something that is all over. And I think if you look at Google Trends, it's climbing up and up and up. And how would you actually describe for people that have never heard of nootropics before, just for that kind of beginner, what are nootropics and who are they for? I'll, I'll embed in this explanation a, a caveat and a warning. Um, originally in like 1971 or two, uh, around the time that I was born, nootropics were defined by the scientists that sort of discovered them. And they were defined as having a bunch of properties that I think are very important to pay attention to. And those would include things like, um, being neuroprotective. So they, they, they protect you against, um, toxic risk from other chemicals, from oxygen starvation, from alcohol, um, and from, uh, I think that initially they were used for post-drowning victims as well to help the brain reoxygenate. Huh. So there's a lot going on in terms of neuroprotection historically uh, with these compounds. The other big criteria is they need to support the brain without side effects, without appreciable side effects. And that's very important to emphasize because of who they are for. You know, these days, nootropics are not necessarily prescription drugs. They aren't supplements, you know, me meaning they aren't something that your body necessarily needs or naturally makes. But they should support cognition, meaning focus, good stress response, uh, memory potentially, maybe better sleep. And all these things should be supported without any drawbacks, without any issues with tolerance, with withdrawal or habit forming. There shouldn't be any side effects like appetite suppression or overstimulation. And all of these side effects happen in the stimulant class of drugs, obviously. And I would say that you know none of the Adderalls or Ritalins or Vyvanse or Stratera um, or Modafinil, none of those drugs should be called nootropics because the side effect profile well, manageable is significant. Mm. And if you're somebody who's, who's you know, got a relatively intact brain, who's relatively high performing, and you're just trying to get better at what you do, you know, handle your stress better, get better rest, engage with your cognitive tasks more fully, engage with the joys and excitement of your life more fully, 
um, end up finishing your workday without being burnt out, you know, normal human performance tuning, then you have to be really cautious about risking things that have side effects. If you have a serious psychological problem or a brain problem, you know, you might need to go after a significantly heavy-duty drug where there's some side effects to manage, and you should do that in the context of a medical, you know, advice from your doctor. But managing side effects can be very complicated, especially when there's more than one drug or compound. Um, nootropics generally, uh, at least the strict definition, do not have any side effects and don't have much in the way of interactions. And so you can be a lot more um, uh, sort of exploratory and try things on yourself and see what works. And through extension, nootropics then become this uh, regimen to support your your day-to-day brain health. They're not there to like fix a problem or to you know help you be not ADHD or not anxious or not depressed. They're there to boost your normal output and productivity and engagement. And it's sort of the way that you would think about nutrition. I mean, if you eat lots of you know sugar and and carbohydrates in the morning, by midday you're kind of bonking and you don't have any energy and it's hard to focus. But if you have a really you know amazing breakfast full of high quality fats, then you're sailing through the rest of your day with high performance. The same sort of approach can be considered for nootropics. If you're feeding your brain with lots of things that support calm focus, sustained attention, less stress response, um, then you're sailing through your cognitive tasks and your and your challenges uh, with more resources sort of left over to to um, feel like you're you know you have bandwidth. Who should not be taking uh, nootropics if there's if there's somebody out there that should not be taking them? Well, I mean, there's a lot of compounds out there um, that have history, uh, you know, decades of history of safety and efficacy. Um, but that being said, the vast majority of these compounds have not been used extensively, um, and therefore we shouldn't probably be giving them to children. There's just not enough history. I mean, if I had a teenage kid with some attention problems or some stress problems, I would probably give him or her some nootropics. But in terms of recommending it to you know an adolescent or a child population, it's just not something that's well enough understood. Sure. Sure. And and I would say that's something that you know there's there's better things to do. Um, also, someone who shouldn't you know you shouldn't be going after nootropics if you have again a, a significant psychological you know issue. Nootropics are not going to help you sort of solve uh, significant trauma, depression, anxiety, sleep issues. Those things need bigger guns, heavier interventions, and things like diet hacking, um, things like sleep hacking, um, neurofeedback, mindfulness. Those are all you know sort of bigger guns for making bigger long-term yeah. changes. Yeah. Nootropics are more like, hey, I, I need to have serious output in my job, in my life. Let me bolster that. Let me support that so that I you know, end up coming home at 5 or 6 p.m. and I still have energy for my family or for my hobbies or for my enjoyment. Um, instead of you know, getting burnt out at 1 p.m. in your job and then sort of white-knuckling it for the next three, four hours before you finally you know, uh, slide home without having done much the second <laughs> half of the day. Yeah. I, I think many of us you know, exist in that way. We're midday. We're kind of done. crash. Yeah, I mean, and there's this thing, you know, we have to consider called uh, cognitive fatigue. And I don't, I don't mean tiredness. Cognitive fatigue, and we've all experienced it, it's this, it's this place you're in where you have stuff to do and you just don't want to engage the effort. It's not that you don't have the, the physical energy, you aren't physiologically tired, but you don't want to engage the effortful attending sort of muscle, if sure. you will, of sure. focusing on something. And that is actually a resource that's a little bit limited. If you're forced to perform and make decisions and make choices and think about lots of different things for hours, you start to actually lose the, the desire, the resources to do that. This would be called either cognitive fatigue or decision fatigue as a specific form of that, where after making decisions all day long, you just don't want to make any more decisions. It's just effortful in a way that feels like you don't want to engage with the task. And that's cognitive fatigue. And you can, to some extent, watch your stress response, your stress level, and gauge where your cognitive fatigue is. Now, stress is not necessarily a bad thing. If we were all in giant marshmallow bubbles with no stress, we would quickly fall over dead. You know, we we need a little bit of uh, stress and engagement of the environment to rise to the challenge of having metabolic variability and you know stretching our brains, our minds, our bodies. This is really important to sort of have in in, in gerontology circles. We call this environmental press. You know the, the the pressure of the environment that that causes you to 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 meet challenges uh, that are good for you. You know desirable difficulties of life. 
And in gerontology, if the environmental press is removed, you know, through changes in life circumstances, you hit 65, 70, you know, maybe your spouse dies, maybe your kids don't, don't spend time with you, and suddenly you're in an uh, assisted living home with no more challenges, removing challenges is one of the biggest ways to quickly slide into um, you know, poor performance. And so even those of us that aren't old uh, or having some you know, normal cognitive decline with, with aging, we too will uh, rise to the level of challenge that we are exposed to to some extent. Well, let's dive into the theta and beta and the actual brain waves because now I think we have a really great understanding, Dr. Hill, of kind of who nootropics are for. And, and yes, we don't want to give them to three-year-olds, but they really can help adults be more productive and proactive in their day. Now, when we look at the calming state, I actually use the Muse headband to track my meditation. And so I'm kind of aware of those calm and flow states. But as we know, the flow state is something that can be elusive for a lot of people. Can you describe the alpha, beta, and theta waves and what flow state actually is? Sure. So I think for human performance, we have to consider four brain waves. And these would be, be called theta, low beta, alpha one, and alpha two. And, and in frequency, theta is about four to seven cycles per second or four to seven hertz. Um, low beta is around 12 to 15. And then alpha is in between those two. Alphas, uh, low alpha is like seven to 10 hertz, let's say, or eight to 10. And faster alpha is uh, 10 to 12 or 10 to 13 hertz. And so there's these sort of overlapping frequencies involved with performance. Uh, let's start off with theta and beta, which have some relationship to each other. The ratio of theta to beta is actually among the most well-validated markers for performance, especially attention performance. In fact, blindly, with um, thousands of brain data, you can sort people into ADHD and non-ADHD simply by one measurement, the theta-beta ratio at the vertex of the head. That's it. It's all you need to, to sort people into ADHD and non-ADHD with, with efficacy or specificity. That's about 94, I think, percent. So it's very reliable for gauging how well you are to control your attention. Um, attention deficit's a bit of a misnomer because it's not necessarily a lack of attention resources, you know, we all know the ADHD kid who can sit and play video games for 24 hours without taking a pee break. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily appropriate response to the demands of the environment on your attention. The same kid can't sit still for an hour in a boring classroom. So it's, it's about the marshalling of resources, the appropriate response uh, of these things. And having a lower theta-beta ratio gives you more control over those attention resources. You can choose what to attend to, choose what not to be distracted by. So first of all, we need to get our theta-beta ratio under control to have control over our attention resources. Secondly, we have to consider, or we can consider, flow states. And flow states are, again, very elusive, as you, as you mentioned, and less well understood. I mean, it's a little bit of pop psychology to some extent. Hmm. But if you start to look at some of the emerging literature, there's some evidence that a flow state is um, more access to the faster alpha frequencies, the 10 to 12 hertz um, alpha, we can think about, I mean, there's, there's at least five things in the brain we call alpha. And unfortunately, it gets very complicated very fast. But broadly, or at least the sort of classic alpha, we can think about as an idling or a, a neutral frequency in the brain. So if you close your eyes, the, the visual cortex is, uh, which is in the back of the head, the visual cortex sort of shuts down if your brain is healthy in stress response. And when you close your eyes, the back of the head goes into alpha, this really slow, sort of resting, idle frequency because the tissue back there is not receiving any input. And so it's a good thing to shut things down when you aren't receiving input. Um, and that's really the slower alpha, the 7 to 10, 8 to 10 hertz alpha. That's the can your brain go into idle mode when you relax. If you aren't able to produce that idle in the sensory cortex, then you have the experience of being uh, anxious, being hypervigilant, scanning the environment continuously with your sensory system and not able to disengage. And that kind of stress response is somebody who can't downregulate, especially who can't downregulate at the end of the day. They carry a lot of stress, they're buzzy and busy. There's not access to a calming or soothing sort of state. That's not necessarily about flow, but it, but it is necessary to get into controlled attention states and not to sort of burn out. Now, the Holy Grail appears to be alpha 2 or faster alpha in the 10 to 12 hertz range. And this is um, actually pretty highly correlated with things like intelligence, the amount of alpha 2 you have. And in fact, the speed of your alpha, the average resting speed of your alpha with your eyes closed, um, is uh, highly correlated with intelligence. 
Now, let me, let me add a caveat. Intelligence is a very poorly understood phenomena, and it's not actually, in, in, in scientific terms, not really a valid phenomena, meaning it doesn't really measure what we say that it measures. Um, intelligence uh, is really what intelligence tests assess. It's a very circular definition, but unfortunately, it's not a very good or very well-understood concept, and it's probably not all that valid. It's more culturally bound than actual resource bound in a lot of ways that it's measured. Um, that being said, faster alpha, faster idle state in your brain is highly correlated with better scores on intelligence tests. Unfortunately, faster alpha is also highly correlated with anxiety. Having a more reactive mind, a quick mind, is also potentially more of an anxiety state. So we end up getting into this consideration of um, a quick reactive thought process and sensory system, but not so quick, not so reactive that it's out of our control. So just like everything else, we have to think about the sweet spot. You know, Just overstimulating the brain doesn't necessarily mean more and more and more performance. Mm. You know, like I mentioned earlier, a lack of environmental demand or pressure or press means you don't perform well. But an excess of environmental demands or stress on you also means you don't perform well. There's this inverted U-curve for uh, complex tasks where a little bit of arousal, a little bit of stress is a good thing. A little more is even better. But too much and performance starts to degrade. This is the Yerkes-Dodgson curve, an inverted U-curve on complicated uh, task performance uh, against the stress you're experiencing. So to some extent, performance becomes, uh, at least for those of us monitoring our own day-to-day performance, becomes about monitoring where you are in your own stress response. Do you feel like you have bandwidth? Or do you feel like you're at the edge of your resources where one more thing kicks things out of your mind and makes you forget things and makes you make decisions just to get stuff off your plate as opposed to cautious or well-measured, you know, uh, uh, intelligent, if you will, decisions. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have a catchphrase, uh, intention, not momentum, when it comes to uh, uh, performance. It's really important to act, not react. How'd you come up with that phrase? Uh, through reacting uh, to things my whole life <laughs> and realizing that I needed to take a moment. And, you know, there's, there's, there's this thing in, in classic sort of Buddhist and other spiritual systems where you practice concentrating your mind through spiritual or contemplative meditation techniques and invariably across almost all sort of historical or, or spiritual traditions, what happens with you, with these exercises, with, with these meditations, with contemplative prayer, whatever it is, is there ends up being space between your thoughts. And over time, you disidentify. You stop thinking you are your thoughts and you start feeling yourself in the space, the sort of gentle, less identified, if you will, self. In the, in the observer, in the curious observer between your thoughts, as opposed to being pushed around by your internal mental experience. Have you watched the documentary, What the Bleep Do We Know? I have, and I really don't like it. Well, tell us what you think, because they mentioned the observer concept in the documentary. What did you take from the, from the actual documentary? There, there's a lot of good stuff in there, and there's a lot of bad stuff in there. Unfortunately, it's a lot of woo, and it's a lot of misunderstanding of quantum stuff. I mean, quantum uh, science, quantum physics... And psychology, um, and definitely at the time what the bleep came out, like what, 12, 15 years ago, yeah. um, complete and utter bunk in terms of the observer effect on reality. I'm sorry, you cannot affect your reality by wishing for things. It does not work that way. Um, reality is created by things that happen before other aspects of reality. In classic terms, Buddhism would call this dependent origination. And actually, you know, let's, let's take a little Buddhist side trip for a second. That's what karma is in a Buddhist context. Karma is not a cosmic boomerang. Karma is not a balanced scale where acts you do end up adding up. Karma is the actions you do in the world produce reality, which causes more reality, and eventually that affects either you or other people. Would so, you say that's law of attraction? No, it's cause and effect. Mm. It's, it's, it's physics. There is no woo in karma. It's physics. What you do causes more things to happen. There is no law of attraction. There is no comic, cosmic boomerang. There is no one up there keeping track of what you're doing, in my opinion. It's if you drop something, it lands on the ground and makes a noise. You know, there's, uh, our actions have the same kind of ripple effect on reality. You do not need to get very woo to be amazed by how amazing reality is. And so um, I think that the idea of the observer effect is very important, but on a concrete level. It's not about wishing for things or having a perspective on things and so they change. It's about being aware of how things are so that you can engage with them appropriately. 
And again, this falls back into a, a Buddhist term, I would say, uh, equanimity, being okay with how things are, not being necessarily happy, you know, that we have wars and suffering and somebody cuts you off in traffic. But if somebody cuts you off in traffic, you have a choice. You can respond with, you know, flip them the bird and, and yell at them and get angry and chase them down. Or you can go, okay, that person might have, you know, something to do and, and not even let it uh, hit you personally. And if somebody in, in, on, on the traffic on the 405 or some other highway cuts you off and you don't take it personally, I think you're better off than taking it personally. Sure. Uh, you know, you, you, if you add stressors, you, you have a choice there. You can, you, you can add stressors or not sometimes. You can take things personally or not sometimes. I mean, somebody punches you in the face or, you know, uh, attacks your child. Those are things you might want to take personally. <laughs> well, you mentioned this piece of the brain. Is there a specific piece in the prefrontal cortex that deals with reaction or impulse control? I mean, how do we, how do we silence that more, that part of the prefrontal cortex? Yeah, we reduce our theta, believe it or not. Um, the whole sort of prefrontal area, the dorsolateral PFC, uh, the orbitomedial, orbitofrontal PFC are all involved with um, judgment and is what we're doing appropriate and meeting our goals. And to some extent, we can think about the brain as competing uh, uh, modules. And a lot of what happens in the environment comes into our brain in a way that is involuntary, sort of bottom up. If you see something in front of you, you can't not see it. If you're looking at a word and a language you're, that, you, that you understand, you can't not read it. You, you perceive the reality. It's bottom up. But then top down is how you interpret, how you choose, how you judge what it is you are seeing. And so the top down control, the PFC, is really what's doing that prefrontal cortex. It's kind of like the executive in a company. And, and just like the CEO in a company, the PFC does most of its job by saying, no, don't get distracted. Don't look over there. Keep driving the car. You're trying not to get in an accident. Don't look at the cute person walking down the sidewalk. You know, mm. it's, it's, the, it's the fight of the bottom-up, automatic, sort of visceral, you know, body-based stuff. And the top-down, you know, abstract human, if you will, uh, value and appropriate and abstract sort of um, goal-based things. And it's that fight that we have to um, balance in our lives reacting to stimuli. As stress goes up, fast, fast beta frequencies go up and you become more driven by the bottom-up stuff. And theta also goes up. And when your theta frequencies go up, you have fewer breaks, less breaks on your experience. And so you can really get control over theta and beta ratios um, get more low beta, less fast beta, and less theta through a concentration practice or even a vipassana or insight practice for meditation. Um, you can also do this, of course, through neurofeedback. And you can potentially do this through nootropics. Nootropics do seem to reduce slow frequencies, reduce excess beta, and then bring up the medium frequencies, the faster alpha and the slower beta. So there's lots of things you can do, but honestly, just check in with yourself. And if you're running at the edge, if you're feeling ragged, and like you have no more resources, then you're a little bit too far on that stress versus performance curve. And you have to find ways to pull back, you know? You think about too, what actual changes on a psychological, physiological level happen in the brain when nootropics are introduced, besides just this kind of impulse control section, what else happens in the brain when someone's introducing nootropics? Is it a week long before they feel the benefits? Is it 30 days? What does that look like in the beginning? You know, it depends on the individual, and it depends to some extent on the nootropics we're talking about. But for true brain, um, people generally feel the capsule uh, version of true brain within sort of two to four days. Not usually the first day, but usually the second or third day, people are getting something. And then the effects really emerge over the first month, and by the end of the first month, they're often pretty uh, significant. The the drink format of true brain, because it's a it's a it's a liquid, it's a drink, is absorbed much faster, and people often get a first day or definitely a second day effect. And so it's again a fairly subtle effect. People who have done huge amounts of stimulants or caffeine or drugs of abuse often aren't sure what to expect from nootropics. And what you end up getting is sort of subtle support for what you're already doing, a little more calmness, a little more focus. And then we get lots of reports from people in subtle things like um, better appreciation for what they're looking at or more visual almost sort of uh, attention acuity or a verbal access, word finding or speed of processing. Um, you know, these are all sort of subtle things, nothing dramatic. It's not like you're taking a limitless pill and the world suddenly changes and you're, you know, Brad, Bradley Cooper. <laughs> Such a great movie. Yeah. Great movie. But that was based on modafinil, right? Uh, I mean, 
the the dark fields, which is the book it's written on, I think may have had modafinil uh, uh, influence, but modafinil is not really a very good nootropic. I mean, it's not a nootropic at all. It, yeah, I heard about your story. You had breakouts. Oh, you had you you took it for a I week was, and I took it for 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 two weeks straight and ended up in the hospital, almost dying. And I was in the ER three times or twice in the in urgent care three times in several days. I had body covering head to toe pressure hives. For many, many weeks, and except for steroids, uh, keeping them at bay, I would have ended up sort of my lungs closing up and dying. Oh man! Uh, and it and, and I have you know I have some historical ADHD. It's dramatically gone through neurofeedback and meditation and other things. But um, there's some evidence that if you have an attention, uh, a different, shall we say, attention system like ADHD then the side effect profile of something like modafinil is dramatically increased for you. And therefore, it's not a very good thing to go after for a smart drug. And it never was really anyways. Modafinil is wonderful for sleep issues and very mild for attention support. It's not that great a sort of uh, smart drug. Um, Even the Adderalls and Ritalins are much better at, at giving you a dopamine boost and pushing your sort of drive. Um, modafinil is great if you're narcoleptic or you're working night shift. But Honestly, it's again falls in that category of if you have significant problems, then there's a drug for you. Maybe here, talk to your doctor because of the side effects. But if sure. you don't have a problem, if you're a Silicon Valley entrepreneur or, or you know someone who's um, trying to juggle a family and a job and whatever else, you know modafinil should not be your first thought. Your first thought should be fixing your diet, fixing your sleep hacking, getting meditation practice, starting a yoga practice. And then if your stress response and your performance aren't what you want, you can fine-tune and start hacking with things like nootropics, neurofeedback, and other sort of more uh, aggressive techniques. But there's low-hanging fruit. There's, there are gains to be had without spending money, simple or not much money, simply by getting your diet, your sleep, your exercise, et cetera, under control. More can be done with those things than with nootropics and neurofeedback for many people. This is why I love having you on the show so much, Dr. Hill. I mean, you bring this scientific methodology to basically the fundamentals. I mean, we're talking about sleeping well, eating high-density protein fat sources, making sure your activity and your movement and your sedentary time is low, and making sure that you're doing some type of restorative breath practice. And I'm curious, let's let's shift into this next topic here around training and meditation and neurofeedback. We, we had touched on this a little bit in the beginning of the show, but when we look at the complementary aspect of neurofeedback, meditation and nootropics. Do those three blend together? Have there been studies around implementing nootropics into a quantified meditation practice? I mean, talk to us a little bit about those things. I, I don't think so. I, I, at least as far as I know, there's no studies yet. Um, we're starting at True Brain, starting to do some studies on brain activity or brain effects of, of nootropics. But again, we're just really starting to put some stakes in the ground in the research uh, realm of nootropics. It's still pretty a wild west uh, you know, uh, in the in the literature, um, and where True Brain's trying to be smart is by not going after the risky research chemicals, by doing good testing, by sort of being a, a curation, uh, you know, uh, a resource for people, and giving you the a smart, safe, good place to start with nootropics. Um, but yeah, I, I do think there is a place for combining neurofeedback, meditation, and nootropics. Um, you know, I I run a neurofeedback center in in Los Angeles in Culver City, and. Uh, I do brain training, uh, neurofeedback with people two or three times a week typically, and I encourage all of them to develop meditation practice. I provide, uh, my, my, my staff provides one-on-one meditation coaching to help you build a meditation practice um, as well. And we're right next door to an Ashtanga, uh, Ashtanga yoga studio, which is a sort of meditative form of vigorous yoga. Oh, that's got to be perfect. It's amazing. I mean, for me personally, it's, yeah. it's, it's amazing. I, I go there at 6.30, work out for an hour and a half, come next door, and you know, I'm jumping into my, my brain training day. I got to come check out this location. I, sure. I, go to, uh, I go to Venice quite a bit in, in LA. So where exactly is the center so people can check you out if they're in the LA area? So it's in Culver City. Uh, the website's peakbrainla.com. But the, uh, Culver City is a section of West LA right on the 405, uh, basically right next to Venice. Um, and, uh, not too far North of LAX. And, you know, in fact, a lot of my clients are from LA obviously, but I have dozens of clients that come to see me for, you know, one to five weeks, stay in Los Angeles, get a brain boot camp, and then go back home and, uh, train with their own equipment under my supervision long-term. What's a brain boot camp? Well, you, you, you come for, you know, again, one to five weeks and you get a QEEG, 
Um, you do a lot of neurofeedback, meditation. Um, if they're here for um, a month or more, then I enroll them in the Ashtanga studio next door. And my, my uh, Ashtanga teacher, Jorgen Christensen, takes them over as well for a month. And they get some, some – I mean, Ashtanga is all about developing a self-practice. And it's a very vi- physically vigorous form of yoga. But it's also a form, uh, at least traditionally – that isn't done in sort of a lead class fashion very much. And so going to an, a typical or traditional Mysore-style Ashtanga studio means you're given uh, poses to do, a sequence, and then you move through sort of synchronized breath and motion again and again and again, but no one's talking at you. And therefore you are able to fall into a deep meditative state. Um, and so uh, a lot of my clients who are not from LA will come and hang out. And I mean, Culver City is very beautiful. It's a, it's a great little town inside of LA. And so people will, you know, spend some time in the beach, do an Airbnb, um, and then train their brain two or three times a day. And uh, depending on how much time they have with me, they might get through a full course of training in about five weeks, or they might um, go back home. And then I uh, sort of check in with them weekly about what they're doing, give them new things to try, and new and new neurofeedback protocols. But you know, over the past couple of years, that means I have clients in you know Mexico, Ireland, Saudi Arabia. Um, I've got seventeen people, I think, in St. Louis. Oddly enough, interesting. Um, you know, I mean, all over the world, people come and see me, and then they and they get sort of up and running with this stuff, and then they go back home. You know, it, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work well for everyone to do that. They have to be somewhat technically savvy. Sure. Um, you know, if somebody's got severe ADHD or there's developmental issues or autism. Um, and they don't have a lot of caretakers around who are computer savvy, then it's better probably to find a neurofeedback person to work with the whole time. But if you're a peak performance type or somebody that's really you know, motivated to make brain change, then there is, you know, it, this technology is approachable the same way that developing your own meditation practices, developing your own neurofeedback training regimen is doable with a little bit of help, uh, you know, initially getting up and running with assessments and gear. Um, and to sort of come full circle, I do think the combination of neurofeedback and mindfulness um, and then the sort of supportive nootropics can all uh, fit together really well. I, I view that uh, the, the neurofeedback mindfulness combination I view as sort of the personal trainer and the personal coach. Um, neurofeedback is like going to the gym and someone saying, you know, one more rep, build that resource, build that strength, that, that, that muscle where mindfulness is like the personal trainer or the, rather the, the sports coach who's helping you with technique, ah, lift your elbow more when you release the ball, you know, think about balance. And so I think that neurofeedback is building resource and mindfulness is helping you learn to use that resource and become sort of more familiar with your internal landscape and your environment and start developing the skills. Um, I, you know, I often do a lot of work with ADHD and we, we get sort of two thirds of the way into the process and symptoms are usually gone and people are usually tapering or discontinuing all their psychostimulants. And there needs to be a discussion at that point. Okay, look, you know, little Jimmy, you've had ADHD for the, you know, your whole life and you're 15. Um, you feel different and, and you're excited about it and you feel sharp and crisp and attentive, but you know, you do still have that habit of procrastination that you used to have. So the habits and the restructuring your activities and your skills is a lot better, I think, done with things like mindfulness or even therapy or coaching, where the resources is where neurofeedback is the big gun. Hmm. And then the nootropics become the, the day or the, the sort of um, state tuning strategy. Um, neurofeedback is affecting traits and resources and long-term strategies and skills. Nootropics, I think, really affects your day-to-day uh, uh, resources, where you're able to affect the state you're in, be a little more calm, a little more focused, a little more resilient. But when the nootropic wears off, it's out of your system, there's no residual effect. Neutro- uh, neurofeedback and mindfulness and diet and yoga and meditation – those things don't wear off. You know, the, the brain and body changes you get from those kind of interventions seem to be yours to keep. And with timing, we look at implementing new behaviors. One of the things that I love so much, Dr. Hill talking about on the show, is behavior change and contrasting that with different wellness technology methodologies that are out there. Now, when we look at what quick things people can do to implement, because we know there's so many different ways that people can get lost essentially down a rabbit hole. There's so much cool stuff. There's binaural beats, there's neurofeedback, there's all these different things. But for somebody who's just super busy and is listening to the show and they're interested in, you know, what are two or three things quick? 
quickly that they can implement today or tomorrow that'll start to improve the way that their brain fires and the way it performs? Well, you know, the absolutely sort of best low-hanging fruit, if you will, in, in performance is gotta is gotta be meditation. And you don't need to do very much meditation for it to to be effective on changing your brain. You need to do it often, but not huge amounts of time. So even research uh, that shows 20 minutes a day um, uh, shows that the brain starts to change within a matter of uh, days or weeks. Uh, There's research on ADHD, research on, on elder brains, and it does look like meditating for 20 minutes a day starts to change your brain significantly in a couple of weeks. Significantly, and, and dramatically, potentially in a couple of months. And um, I'll just say a couple things about meditation uh, to maybe dispel some myths. I, I end up this, this ends up being a very common thing that I discover. Um, people seem to be a little bit resistant to meditation sometimes because it's hard. Well, yeah, not only is it hard, but I hear things like, "Well, I can't do that. I'm not good at shutting my mind up, or or letting my mind go quiet, or getting to a blank state. I can't do that. Therefore, I'm not going to be good at meditation." And I sort of have to get people to flip that on, on its head, no, no pun intended. Meditation is not making your mind blank. Meditation is actually an, an attention training exercise about anchoring or focusing your attention in a specific way on some uh, target of the attention on purpose in the present moment. And so the act of meditation becomes deciding how to attend on the breath, on a sound, on the sensation of your body you know, uh, rising and falling as you breathe or something. And the act of meditation is noticing when you've drifted, when you're starting to think about being hungry or that your knee hurts or the cute girl you just saw or what you have to do later on that day, whatever it is, fantasies, remembering, dreaming, wishing, planning, those things creep in because you have a mind. If if that didn't happen, you wouldn't be alive. (laughs) So, you know, 10 seconds into meditation, 20 seconds, a minute, whenever it happens, that will, you know, the distraction, the the lack of focus, the, the anchor has been lost of, of meditation. And, and meditation, the act of meditation, simply is noticing that you've gotten distracted, putting down whatever's captured your attention, and returning your attention to the, the object, the focus of meditation. And you might do that again and again and again. That's all it is. That's all meditation is. Hmm. Um, that's easy to do. It's a little bit frustrating, a little bit difficult to keep doing. But the idea about you have to be good at it or you have to even evaluate how, how well you're doing is a little bit secondary. And I would encourage folks who are thinking about trying this and, and they're worried that they can't do it or have a lot of self-doubt or self-judgment, try to let go the judgment and the, 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 quali- uh, the qualitative assessment and replace it with a sense of curiosity. You know, examine and be okay with what happens in the 20 minutes you're sitting down trying to focus. Um, instead of saying, oh, that didn't work, I can't do it. And also, don't, don't give up. I mean, you know, when you first started to learn a new skill or a new language or go to the gym, it took some time. And it will take about you know, a week or two of doing this every day before you start getting shifts. But you will get shifts in a week or two. Uh, True Brain has somewhere on the internet, also Peak Brain does too, um, a little 20-minute how-to on how to meditate. Maybe we can put that in the show notes for your folks. But um, it's really a simple practice about focusing your attention for five minutes and then being aware of changing stimuli for 15 minutes. And I think that's enough to make significant, profound, and long-lasting changes in the brain. At, and, and at any brain. I mean, this seems to work for kids with ADHD. You know, you can reduce ADHD symptoms with mindfulness meditation. Mm-hmm. It also seems to work at the other end of the life course. Um, elders who meditate do not show normal cognitive aging qualities like thinning of the cortex. And in fact, the amount of meditation you've done in your life appears to be the amount of cortical thinning you are spared. In a lot of the sort of research looking at long-term meditators, there's a part of the brain on the sort of lateral sides of the frontal lobe called the insula cortex, which is involved with body awareness, feeding, a few other things, and maybe some judgment around uh, you know, food and, and um, sen- uh, sensory stuff a little bit too. Um, like for instance, if you stimulate the insula with TMS, people often stop smoking. It's, it's involved with feeding and, and body stuff to some extent. And what is TMS for people? That oh, tra- know? transcranial magnetic stimulations. It's a magnetic pulse that sort of activates or deactivates the cortex. Got it. Got um, it. And, and long-term meditators show increased 
thickness of frontal lobe cortex and insula cortex. So the normal sort of softer attention you get, the slowed reaction times, the decrease in executive function, you know, normal cognitive agents, not pathology. This is what happens when you hit like 60, 65, 70. Your brain slows down. You, know, you, you lose cortex. You lose cells. The cortex thins out unless you're a meditator. And then so you're, simple. you're spared that. So 20 minutes a day, start now. This is so cool, man. I, I love that there's been this recurring theme on the show. I don't know if you've realized this, but as, as advanced as some of the topics we've discussed, it all comes back to the fundamentals and the basics. I work with a lot of clients and it's easy for people to get thrown off course. But when we get away from how we drink, how we hydrate, how we move, how we eat, how we sleep, these are the core fundamental building blocks. And you have actually talked about sleep and brain health and the cross between the two. Can you touch on for the audience circadian rhythm, how waking up at dawn is actually promoting brain health and, and alertness and things like that? Sure. So um, let's, let's do some, neuros, some, some neurophysiology. Um, the optic nerves are... Um, neurons, tracks of, of, of bundles of neurons that leave the retina behind the eye and go back into the brain. And they cross a little bit further back. And, and where they cross is called the optic chiasm. C-H-I is the Greek letter X, chi. And so it's the optic X, the optic cross. Um, and, and it's a couple inches behind the eyes. And right above this optic chiasm is a little nucleus of cells, a cluster of cells called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the nucleus on top of the optic chiasm. And this suprachiasmatic nucleus, the SCN, has this amazing little job of actually sampling the frequencies of light that the retina is picking up. And it's connected to parts of the brain that are involved with monitoring what time it is, essentially. And the SCN is one of the strongest circadian reset signals. And how it appears to do its job is through noticing a specific bandwidth of light, a frequency of light that is very prevalent right when the sun comes up in the morning. Now, I think this has something, something to do with um, the angle of the sun just over the horizon, a lot more sort of, of a rich, full spectrum of light gets through when it's just rising. And when the sun's much higher in the sky, the angle of reflection is much greater. And so much less uh, light actually gets in through the atmosphere and much more gets reflected back out into space. And so I believe we have these frequencies uh, that are most prevalent in light in the first hour after dawn. And therefore, um, a, a brain or a sleep hacking theory or a sleep hacking technique that I often encourage folks to try if their sleep is off is get up within the first one hour after sunrise every day for about a week and go outside within that first hour and get some light in your face. Because that should really enhance the signal to the SCN, and it should cause the circadian rhythm, your, you know, your, your normal 24, 5, 6-hour cycle your brain and body want to be on. It'll take that, that, that rhythm, that, that cycle, and it will synchronize it to the Earth's uh, rhythm, the Earth's photo period or light-dark cycle. And there's a lot of history, a lot of research suggesting that when your circadian rhythm, your, your own day cycle, gets out of sync with the Earth's photo period, the Earth cycle, that's when a lot of weirdness happens with stress response and cortisol and learning issues and depression and faster aging. It's really quite problematic. And synchronizing your circadian rhythm with the Earth cycle appears to improve a lot of these health things. So I encourage folks to try this um, as an intervention if they got some issues or they're you know different time zones and trying to shrug off uh, jet lag. But it also sort of informs a strategy about when you should get up. And um, what I mean is it doesn't matter so much when you go to bed. You know, yes, it's good to get seven, eight hours sleep a night, but if you're somebody who has a very high productive life and you can't necessarily control, you know, getting enough sleep every night, mm -hmm. it's much more important to get up in the morning at the same exact time every day than it is to go to bed at the same time every day. Talk about that a little bit more because what if the usage of sleep and how sleep can affect our health, what if someone's getting four or five, six hours a night? Is it still important for them to get up at sunrise? I think it is. I mean, if you're getting four hours sleep a night, day in, day out, you're gonna have a significantly prob a significant problem. You're gonna be hungry. <laughs> you're, gonna, you're gonna be hungry and also the lack of sleep means that your brain starts producing inflammation. Um, the lack of sleep means your brain cannot wash itself with cerebral spinal fluid, so toxins build up. 
And over time, a sleep-deprived brain looks an awful lot like a depressed brain in terms of activity patterns. And so, you know, you do need significant sleep. Also, learning and consolidation of memory starts to slow down and stop when you don't get good sleep. You need deep sleep, slow-wave sleep, delta sleep, which is not dreaming sleep, to both consolidate uh, memory and to wash the brain. And you need uh, some SMR, some 12 to 15 hertz low beta, to consolidate memory, to make the hippocampus sort of uh, store memories in the cortex. What if someone's in an environment where they can't get outside? Maybe it's, you know, minus four, they're in Russia, or just people that live in cold climates. Can, is there a way they can mimic that kind of sunrise in the, in the morning type atmosphere in the indoors? You know, um, light boxes and full spectrum things um, do appear to be somewhat helpful, but it's a bit of a weak intervention. You need the real thing. Yeah, you need the real thing. And I also think that um, it's about the strength of the entrainment signal. So day in, day out, if you're relatively good, then your brain stays regulated. But things like you know, seasonal affective disorder, which happen much more in climates without a lot of morning sunlight in the winter, um, that's about a lack of entrainment signal. The brain forgets what time it is. And, the, and your, own photo, your own circadian rhythm drifts, if you will, past the Earth's photo period. Uh. So it is a little important. But that being said... It's not like you need to get full uh, sunlight at 6.30 in the morning in Southern California. I mean, a little bit of light through the clouds in New England in the winter is still likely going to do some entrainment. So, you know, maybe instead of walking, you know, around San Diego in the morning, you're sitting on your, you know, screened-in porch in Boston, you know, drinking your coffee in a sweater. Maybe that's your morning light, you know? I I don't think it needs to be what we think of as full-blown sunlight. Light does get through clouds, even dim clouds, even clouds that make light look dim. We're getting a lot of light frequencies that aren't necessarily just about brightness, you know, and yellow light. So I think it's still useful. But, you know, if you're waking up at four, five, six in the morning and the sun is, you know, below the horizon, it doesn't (laughs) doesn't come up for hours because you're in the Arctic or something, it's going to be a problem and you're going to have to be uh, a little more strategic and I think there's some things you can do to offset the, the risks there. Yes, a light box in the morning only. Do not use light boxes any other time. You want to encourage the entrainment, not just encourage a signal. Um, I also think you want to make sure you're getting enough good fats. I also think you want to make sure you're getting vitamin D3. You know, Vitamin D is produced by the body, but it's also not produced enough by most humans. And so it is a sunlight, if you will, encouraged signal within the body. So um, supplementing with, vit- with 5,000 IUs of vitamin D3 every morning should also help that entrainment signal. Hmm. I'm not sure if the research shows that, but it's plausible. And so I think and, and vitamin D is you know, almost universally helpful for humans. Every tissue in the body has vitamin D receptors. So it should be, I think, a, a part of a strategy for everyone who's trying to make their brain healthy. And definitely if you're in an area without good sort of daylight entrainment uh, access and you aren't getting good morning sunlight, I think adding vitamin D3 to your morning and adding really good fats to your morning uh, uh, diet regimen become much more important. Words of wisdom, Dr. Hill. Thank you so much. I want to transition to the last part of the show before we say goodbye. And by the way, I mean, I feel like I could talk to you for like three hours. I want to take a couple of nootropics and just you and I meet at a coffee shop right now. Sure, sure. Um, but, but the last part of the show is special. It's just seven for seven. It's seven power questions for seven top of mind answers. It's whatever comes up for you first. I'm curious as a neuroscientist, what'll come up. Now, the first question is if you could just do one exercise or movement pattern, what would it be and why? Um, I, um, again, I, you know, I, I do Ashtanga. So for me, uh, I'm going to stretch the, the one thing and say that I would do sun salutations. It's a you know, series of five or six moves, but you move through uh, sun salutations. Um, it's rhythmic breathing and motion that pretty much hits every muscle in the body. Mm. Uh, and um, for me, it's, it's a pretty amazing both mental state shifter and physical state shifter. You know, even if you dropped every other thing I do in yoga out of my life, just doing sun salutations for 20 minutes in the morning would change my body and brain uh, in a way that you know, would keep me on track. What is the best book you've read this year? Uh, this year? Um, you know, I opened a brand new neurofeedback and brain fitness center and I've actually been, been rereading a classic neurofeedback text called Doing Neurofeedback by Richard Souter. Um, 
and uh, getting all of my brand new technicians uh, uh, to read that. So we're, we're we're digging into that book a lot more these days. It's you know a technical manual for neurofeedback people, but um, I'm I'm enjoying it again. It's an old classic. So if there was just one thing you could change about the wellness industry, what would it be and why? Uh, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of potential in wellness to use more quantified self, to give people more data about their own stress levels, hormone levels, sleep patterns, diet patterns, um, the, the, the patterns of lifestyle interventions day to day against the patterns of improvement or stress you're experiencing. And I, 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 have, a, I have a goal long term over the next couple of years to really bring the quantified self um, sort of technology tool set into the self hacking and intervention uh, space, which a uh, brain fitness in a way that brings these really mysterious and complicated and high tech uh, methodology to the user so that they don't need necessarily to go to a neuroscientist to start doing some of these high tech things. God, I was jumping up and down when I heard you speaking right now. I was at Quantified <laughs> Self this year. Uh-huh. And one of the things I noticed, Dr. Hill, is that I'm walking around, I'm talking to the OEM manufacturers, and I'm realizing they're so excited about the tech, but they're not connecting the emotional why, the emotional trigger, the behavior change element behind it. Do you find that's the case right now in QS? I do. And I find that's the case even in neurofeedback. I mean, I, I, I use um, people's experiences while training to guide what I do next. I push your brain in one direction, it feels like you're on fire and you, you can't get enough work done and you're just feeling like, you know, like limitless, uh, then I do that protocol again. And if I do something to your brain and it doesn't work, I disrupt your sleep or make you feel foggy, we don't do that again. But I rely on people's subjective self-reports for that. And for years, for like the decade I've been doing it, I've been trying to get folks to fill out surveys when they're home and to answer questions about their sleep habits and their sleep mm. experience. It's really difficult to get people to stop and go report something like that. Yes. So for me, it's about making like the QS, the quantified self, sort of two-way street of information where there's a Fitbit or an accelerometer in your pocket or whatever it is that's tracking information for me semi-automatically or automagically, as I call it. Um, and then from there... I hope that I can get people to not have to engage effortfully with data tracking and we can really start to leverage some of the automaticity of QS towards the behavior shaping. Sort of say, look, you walked 5,000 five, 5, steps is a gerontology sort of magic uh, amount of activity for, for elders. More than, more than 5,000 steps a day seems to reduce your risk of sedentary behavior um, uh, dramatically. And less than 5,000 steps a day are being sedentary is actually as risk, risky to the cardiovascular system as smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. Wow. So, um, you know, a Fitbit or a phone that's m- tracking your steps, if, we could, if I could map that into a dashboard for someone and say, look, Mr. Jones, you know, over the past month, you've been getting 5,000 steps a day. The previous month, you didn't. And look at this. For the past month, your stress level's down, your sleep's better, your mood's better. And the only thing you really did different was you know, take my, my recommendation of doing more steps a day. And that had this intervention. That's such a huge thing. Showing what changes did is a huge thing for motivating intentional behavior change. And it's also really important for me to look at, oh, I tried this neurofeedback protocol and I got much better sleep maintenance. Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, that's such good data from both a scientific point of view, the intervention point of view, and the self-hacking, the quantified self point of view, that I think we're not quite there yet for tying it all together, but we're oh, but the technology's there. Now it's just a question of closing the loop and giving people, the individual consumer, the tools in a way that is not quite so mystifying for all the data. I love what you're mentioning. And it's essentially what I do as a digital health coach. I work with Nudge. I have a partnership with Nudge Coach. Mm-hmm. And I can read in my system literally any wearable device, which gives the clients I work with actionable feedback yep. on things that they can do based on the unique data their body creates. I think that's why I'm so excited about what we do on the show, Dr. Hill, is because data is one thing, but it's the intention behind the tools and the data, the meaning, the emotional why. That's what makes people do different things. That's what makes people change their behavior. And Absolutely. I love how you've touched on that so much. Last three questions. If you could go to Iceland or Fiji, where would you go? Why would you go? And who would you take? I would go to Iceland. Um, you know, it's a beautiful country. I've never been there. I also speak a little bit of Swedish and all the Scandinavian languages are, are overlapped a fair amount. And Iceland is 
The other sort of a classic uh, Swedish, Norwegian, Danish overlap each other by like 60, 70%. And Icelandic is also somewhat similar. So I would get a little bit of the culture and language uh, just through osmosis. And I think I would enjoy, I'm also of Scottish extraction ethnically. So I think a cold, you know, northern climate uh, for me is a bit better than, um, you know, in a, in a tropical island somewhere. What is three supplements or smart drugs you mm-hmm. take if you could literally only take three? I know that's kind of a yeah. power question there, but that's what okay. three would they be? I would take um, vitamin D3, paracetam, and some form of choline, probably citicoline or alpha-GPC. Those would be my absolute pry them out of my cold, dead hands after my brain falls apart kind of uh, regimen. <laughs> Last question for today. What is wellness to you? What is your definition of wellness? Wellness for me is about managing with intention the healthy choices I make and being less reactive, you know, planning to cook, uh, um, you know, uh, hard-boiled eggs that I have snacks to eat that are healthy and support my brain as opposed to getting into, you know, two, three o'clock in the afternoon and all I've had is coffee and now I reach for, you know, uh, carbohydrates and feel even worse. So it's about the measured, careful planning so that my choices become ones that serve my needs as opposed to reacting to needs in the moment in a way that might not serve my, you know, sort of overarching uh, perspectives. I love your definition. And I want to read just this last sentence I found on True Brain. And it's, we come from pretty diverse backgrounds, but we're all excited to work on something that helps people feel their best. Our mission is to help people do amazing things by living to their full potential and finding success in whatever they do. Dr. Andrew Hill, thank you so much for coming on Wellness Force Radio. There is a lot of information here. I'm going to list everything in the show notes, as well as a super generous discount code that TrueBrain has given to the Wellness Force audience. You can find that at wellnessforce.com slash TrueBrain for 25% off. Is there anything we missed today in the show, Dr. Hill, that you feel is really important to talk about to the audience in regards to behavior change, nootropics, or creating new systems that'll work in their health and wellness? You know, I, we covered a lot, so I don't think we missed anything, but the only thing I want to emphasize is that, um, again, it's one of the catchphrases, uh, shift happens. If you aren't happy with your stress level, your emotional satisfaction or enjoyment with life, your anxiety, your sleep, your cognitive resources, these things change and can be developed. You should not be satisfied. Do not settle for a brain that doesn't do what you want. You can change. Shift happens. That is a wrap for episode 41 here on the podcast. Thanks again for sticking around to the end of the show. If you are new, the end of every show is where I give away what I like to call treats. Today is absolutely no different. Make sure that you enter FORCE for a 25% off coupon code over at wellnessforce.com slash truebrain. Dr. Hill was gracious enough to give us a huge discount for some products that I've been taking for a while that have really moved the needle for me to stay focused and to stay present with the demands of being an entrepreneur. And I'm sure you can relate if you're a busy parent or a busy professional. Sometimes we all need to leverage new technology to compete with the demands of this modern world. Well, wellnessforce.com slash truebrain. Check out the 25% off coupon code from truebrain. If you want to tweet Dr. Hill, give him a quick tweet at Andrew Hill PhD. Give him a shout on Twitter. Let him know that you enjoyed his information here on the show. Now you get to go and have an amazing day with all the tools and inspiration that you learned from Dr. Hill and all the other guests we've had on Wellness Force Radio. And until I see you again next Tuesday, I'm wishing you love and wellness.